When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. And this week's cheerful person, I am incredibly excited because it's, it's my first time speaking to him. He has a new book detailing his life and career. It's called Unspeakable. And on the phone now, we are joined by John Burko. Hello. Jeff, good afternoon to you and thank you for having me on this podcast. Now, now a lot of people on the phone, they have their, their telephone voice and then you have the voice you just use around the house. You, you have a third voice, which is your House of Commons voice. Do, do, you, do you get to use that anymore? I can't say I do get to use that voice anymore. Your children are never on the receiving end of it. I'm not in the habit of calling order at home, no. <laughs> we did use all of us to shout order at some point in the home, but that was not at each other. It was when we were addressing our beloved cat. <laughs> we had a cat named by Twitter poll order. <laughs> that cat is not with us now. That cat has a new and safe home, and that's a great thing. But there is no reason now for the word order to be uttered in the Burko residence. And, and what, is, what a strange life it must be for you, having just spent a, a decade of your life living in the, the Palace of Westminster. Can you just tell us a little bit about the, the changes that you've experienced over the, and, the, and the readjustment over the last couple of months? Yes, Jeff. I mean, I suppose, really, there are two major changes. First, we're now living in our own. Uh, don't get me wrong, it was an enormous privilege to serve as speaker, and I loved it from start to finish. And it was a privilege to live in the Palace of Westminster in Speaker's House, a grace and favour residence provided to the Speaker. But of course, it wasn't ours. We didn't own it. The pictures weren't ours. The decor wasn't ours. The furniture wasn't ours. So the first great change is that we're now living in our own home. And, you know, that's a great joy. The second major change, I suppose, is that you have to become used to the withdrawal of your previous structure. That is to say, the pattern of commitments to which you'd become accustomed over a long period, certain fixed points in the day when I would be doing certain things, whether it be internal office meetings or sharing Prime Minister's questions, and obviously, by definition, all of that goes. 
I'm not only no longer speaker, I'm no longer a member of parliament, I'm a private citizen, and Sally and I and the kids are living in our home and forging a new path. Now, John, I think it will be good to talk about the evolution of your career before we get on to your tenure um, as as speaker. Um, talk to us about how you first got into to politics. How, how did you come into a sort of political path? And uh, I, I think it was, I believe it was at university and then, and then a bit about your trajectory into the House of Commons. Well, it was really a combination of factors. So there was a negative and a positive. The negative was that I was experiencing the so-called winter of discontent, 1978 to 79, when the streets went unswept and sick people went untreated and dead people went unburied. And it was a pretty wretched winter for the country. I thought at the time, although in fact, in retrospect, I think Jim Callaghan was a very good and decent man who was coping as best he could in extremely difficult circumstances. But at the time, I thought, wow, this person is completely lost in the office of prime minister and the country is ungovernable. That was the negative that provoked an interest on my part in politics. And the positive was that I was at school in Finchley. I didn't actually live in Margaret Thatcher's constituency, but I was at school in her constituency. And towards the end of the 1979 election campaign, she came to speak at a school, not my school, but a nearby school, one of the local grammar schools. And I went to hear her. And at the time, in a way, obviously, that you wouldn't have been, because you started on the left and have stayed on the left, I was very impressed and inspired by her. And I must have been a bit pushy because I arranged to wangle my way to the front of the hall. I think I'd been listening on a tannoy outside the hall, but I wangled my way to the front of the hall at the end and got myself introduced to her and said that I'd much enjoyed her speech. And she said to me, are you a member of the young conservatives? And I said, well, Mrs. Thatcher, I'm not, but I have come to listen to you and be much inspired by what you've said. Well, you most assuredly should be, she said to me. A little while later, I did, and I joined the Young Conservatives, and then I got more involved at university. The biggest mistake I made at that time, Ed, about which I've spoken openly and candidly many times and in very forthright terms in my book was to join the extreme right-wing pressure group on the fringes of the Conservative Party, the Monday Club. That really was a thoroughly reprehensible, indeed disgraceful thing to do. I can't even now fully explain it, other than that I was influenced by my dad, who had a very strong, misguided but very strong objection to large-scale new Commonwealth and Pakistani immigration. And my only attempted exoneration now is to say, well, if most of your listeners believe in the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act, I hope they will feel that I'm forgiven because I did leave the Monday Club in February 1984, that is to say 36 years ago, and I hope over the years I've demonstrated my commitment to racial equality, gender equality, and LGBT equality, and the rest. And, and, so, you know, as absolutely. I say, I'm very ashamed of that period of my uh, life. Well, well, it's very good. Very wrong-headed and stupid. So open about it. I and, was wrong and, then, and I, I hope I'm right now. 
And t- tell us how you then found your way into Parliament, because I think it's important for our listeners. And then we'll talk about, about your evolution. Yes, I hugely enjoyed my three years at university. And then after that, I got involved in local government. I became a local councillor in the London Borough of Lambeth. You can tell I rather thrived on opposition. There was a strongly left-wing Labour council. I was one of the 21 strong conservative opposition. I became deputy leader and served in that role for a couple of years and was quite soon encouraged to apply for the conservative parliamentary candidates list. Now, I didn't seriously expect to get into parliament in my 20s, but you will yourself be well aware that a lot of people start at that point to have a go. They are tested, they're blooded, if you like. And I stood for the Conservative Party in the 1987 election in Motherwell. And I then stood again in 1992 in Bristol. But I resolved the next time in the run-up to 1997 to apply only for very, very, very safe Conservative seats. Because although I was then still very, very much a hardline, radical, Thatcherite Conservative... I nevertheless had a a real apprehension, a premonition of electoral annihilation for the Conservative Party. I came to think that the Conservative Party was going not just to lose the 1997 election, but to be slaughtered. And so that's my way of explaining to you that I didn't really want to apply for any further marginal seats. As it is, I applied for a couple of seats that I'm glad I wasn't selected for, because in the end, they were lost by the Conservative Party. But The bulk of seats I applied for were seats with large Conservative majorities, and I was very fortunate in the end to be selected in February 1996 as the prospective Conservative parliamentary candidate for Buckingham. And at that point, I did feel that, barring some completely unforeseeable event or, God forbid, a by-election that I might lose, the chances were that I would get into Parliament at the subsequent election. And so fortunately for me... It proved. And you then served uh, as a backbench MP. You served on the front bench. But but meanwhile, there was a big evolution in your politics going on from the relatively right-wing person that you said you were. There was an evolution. It didn't happen all at once. I didn't have a revolution in my thinking, nor did I have one sudden breaking dawn realisation. It was more a gradual process. And it started, as it happens, with the issue of LGBT equality. It was a subject to which, to be honest, I hadn't really given a great deal of thought. I'm a straight man. In the past, I had probably been vaguely homophobic, but I wouldn't put it more strongly than that. It was just not a subject to which I'd given much consideration. And initially, either once or possibly even twice, the record will show, I voted, Ed, in 1998, I think it was, and possibly in 1999, for the statutory discrimination between gays and heterosexuals. But as I did so, I was a bit uncertain in my own mind. I remember hearing Eleanor Lang and Sean Woodward, who were both on the Conservative benches at the time, 
speaking in favour of an equal age of consent. And although I didn't vote with them, I did find their speeches compelling. And so I thought about it. I talked to teachers, head teachers, church leaders in my constituency. And I also talked to a man called Tim Boswell, who's now in the House of Lords, who's very much, a, in a sense, an old-style, moderate, patrician conservative. And he had been a, a long-time supporter of an equal age of consent at the age of 16. And eventually I came to the view that the Labour government was right to be pressing for equality. And in the end, the Labour government decided to bring forward legislation on the subject at the beginning of 2000. And Tim Boswell said to me, John, have you decided how to vote? And I said, Tim, I have. I've decided to vote for an equal consent. And he said, can I offer you a word of advice? And I said, please do. He said, John, if you've changed your mind, I strongly recommend that you apply to Madam Speaker and ask to speak in the debate, because the House is always interested to hear from someone who's changed his or her mind. And to some extent, he said, it could be argued that you owe it to yourself and perhaps to your constituents to set out your reasoning. So I took Tim's wise advice. I applied to speak and spoke on the 10th of February 2000 in favour of an equal age of consent. Now, did that suddenly make me a person of the left or even of the centre? It didn't, but it did start a process, I suppose, which caused me to think about other issues, other issues in terms of LGBT equality and perhaps other issues beyond that. The second thing I think that really prompted a reconsideration of my brand of politics was the catastrophic defeat of the Conservative Party in 2001. You'll often have heard it said that Conservatives reconsidered their position when the Conservatives were slaughtered, annihilated, almost wiped out in 1997. That, for example, was Michael Portillo's route to a changed politics. But in 2001, after four years of what I'll call, Ed, if I may, your government, uh, led by Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, by which I haven't been much impressed, I was forcibly struck by the fact that you got back with another whopping majority, a majority of 167. And after four years of the prodigious and eloquent efforts of William Hague as leader of the Conservative Party, from 1997 to 2001, the Conservative seat tally had risen from 165 seats to 166. So I thought to myself, well, why did the Conservatives do so badly? And in the end... Not all in one go, but over a period, I came to the conclusion that there were really three big problems for the Conservative Party. The first was that we were being deservedly punished for our neglect of um, rank underinvestment in public services. The second was that we seemed and perhaps were indifferent to the plight of people in the inner cities, and somewhat insensitive or indifferent to the gap between the haves and the have-nots. In other words, we didn't seem to think that very substantial disparities of wealth and income were a problem. And I started to think, well, I think they are, and I think a lot of people think that they are. And the third factor was really, I suppose, encapsulated in one of the most famous speeches that Theresa May ever made, that Conservative Party conference speech in which she said that the 
Conservatives had come to be regarded as the nasty party. Now, of course, Theresa, I mustn't misrepresent her, and I don't seek to do so, was quick to say that she didn't share that characterization of the Conservative Party. She didn't think it was a fair representation of who the Conservatives were, but it was the image of the Conservative Party. I have to say, I'd come to the conclusion that, in significant measure, that characterization was accurate. We showed considerable evidence of being uninterested in ethnic minorities, unsympathetic to the rights of women, not very plugged into or concerned about the wishes and aspirations of young people, and frequently, to be candid, homophobic. And I thought to myself, the Conservative Party is going to have to change, it's going to have to reform, it's going to have to modernise, both because that's the right thing to do for its own sake, that is to say ethically, and because if the Conservative Party is to compete with a Labour Party which under Tony Blair has effectively colonised the centre ground of politics and made people feel that it's perfectly safe and unthreatening to vote Labour, we too are going to have to change rather as the Labour Party had to change. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I seem to recall at various points during my reconsideration of my politics, Ed, you yourself tried to persuade me that I might as, actually as be featured in more the comfortable book. in the Labour Party. As featured in the book. Yes, I do talk about that. And I, as you know, mentioned... Were you ever tempted? No. I mean, you are a very persuasive guy and immensely personable. We did, of course, as I say in the book, have a number of conversations. And you said to me, well, John, I think with the views you hold, you could perfectly well be in our party and, you know, you might be happier and we might use your talents more fully or indeed we might use them a bit when arguably they weren't being 
used by the Conservative Party. In the end, as you know, somewhat to your disappointment, I felt a basic loyalty to my constituency. Of course. And despite everything, despite everything, to my party. And I suppose the truth of the matter is that over a period, I largely lost interest in and an appetite for the party battle. And I thought to myself, and I think I said to you, somewhat to your frustration, because you are, like most party politicians, deeply party political, I think I said to you, Ed, I'd rather stay where I am, and at some point, if the opportunity arises, I'm tempted to have a crack at the office of Speaker. And as I say, I you took remember I was very, 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 very good grace. I, I think, think I did. Probably I was about to say... I seem to recall on one occasion when we were chatting near the member's cloakroom, relatively innocently, we were chatting, I think, about inheritance tax. Oh, David and Cameron came up to us. No, I think it was Michael Howard who came beetling along, someone uh, to whom I wasn't uh, in the habit oh, of speaking very yes. often anyway. And we both went rather quiet until he had shimmied past oh, us that's we resumed right. our conversation. It may be we were once interrupted by David Cameron. I don't know. We had more than one conversation there. We did, and they weren't all. They weren't all behind closed doors. They, <laughs> they were sometimes sort of, you know, standing by a pillar or, yeah. you know, in a courtroom or whatever. Let's talk about your time as um, speaker. You came into office after the departure, um, or the sort of forced resignation, really, of Michael Martin to do with the expenses crisis. Just at, at the sort of big picture level. What was your view about the sort of House of Commons you were inheriting as Speaker? And then sort of talk to us about what you think are the most important changes you made in your decade or so as Speaker, your most important changes and actions. My overall feeling, Ed, Jeff, at that time, was that Parliament had become far too compliant, far too passive. The power of government had increased, was increasing, and needed to be decreased, of which, in my mind, the corollary was that the power of parliament had decreased, was continuing to decrease, and needed to be increased. Parliament, it seemed to me, had lost its self-confidence, partly exacerbated by the expenses scandal, but long before the expenses scandal, Parliament had become, as I say, too malleable and too ready just to accept that the government dominated day after day after day. And alongside that, I wanted to revive the instrument or mechanism, if you like, of the urgent capital U question, capital Q, a provision that had long existed in our standing orders where any member could apply to the Speaker for the right to put an urgent question to the government on an unexplained controversy, a new crisis that had erupted, some contradiction between what one minister had said and another, or whatever it may be. But it had fallen out of use. In the year before I became Speaker, there were two granted by Mr Speaker. Yeah. In my first year, it was 24 in 10 years, I granted 685 urgent questions. I think it's fair to say, Ed, that the numbers mushroomed very substantially 
in later years because of the Brexit saga or imbroglio. And I defend that. I granted them because I thought that they warranted, they demanded, they required the attention of the House of Commons that day. And it seemed to me, Ed, that that was the biggest change in the proceedings of the I House, because I do think it invested the House with greater dynamism and topicality and unpredictability. It meant backbenchers could raise issues, and sometimes, very often, the opposition front bench could raise issues of urgency. And it meant that ministerial feet were held to the fire. Well, that was often uncomfortable to the executive branch, but no bad thing. The biggest change in the chamber was the renaissance in urgent questions. Outside the chamber... On the parliamentary estate, the most significant developments were the establishment of a nursery, talked about for 40 years but never previously delivered, the creation of an education centre which is going to allow eventually 100,000 more young people to come to Parliament to learn about the journey from the signing of the Magna Carta to the rights and responsibilities which the citizens will enjoy today, And I wanted to engender greater opportunities for women and ethnic minorities to occupy senior positions in the House and did that with appointments of Speaker's chaplains, the Speaker's council, and indeed the Sergeant-at-Arms. I appointed, for example, the first and second BAME Sergeant-at-Arms in the history of the House. So I make no apology for making some of those changes, some of which I was able to do on my own and others of which required support from across the House. But I just make the point that in a sense, you can either be a reforming speaker or you can be an uncontroversial speaker, but you can't be both. And I made my bed and I was happy to lie in it. John, we asked you on because we're excited to speak to you and you're here as a guest, but I think it would be remiss of us not to ask you about the bullying allegations. Um, when, when, when you hear the things that have been said, is, is there anything you recognise in your own behaviour that you, you would do differently? To be honest, I simply don't accept the charges or allegations that have been made in many cases, several years after the alleged misconduct took place. Now I'm passionate, I'm insistent, I pressed for change. I could sometimes be impatient if I thought the obstacles were unreasonably and unnecessarily being put in the way. But I look forward to clearing my name. I've never bullied anyone anywhere in any way at any time. And I think... I sometimes had arguments with people and I would press my case and explain why I thought a particular course of action should be taken. But did I bully anybody? I absolutely didn't bully anybody. I had a very large number of people who worked for and with me for many years very, very, very successfully. There was a small number of people, very institutionalized, often with a real sense of entitlement, who were not keen on me or my agenda, and that's playing out now. Would you be comfortable with displaying the same kind of forcefulness and insistence in, in your dealings with people today? That's a very good question. I suppose you always have to 
recognize in life that mores evolve and over a period attitudes can change. So I suppose one should always ask oneself, well, did I get it completely right? Could it have been handled better? Might I express myself differently? So I certainly wouldn't say, look, I got it all right. But if you're asking in headline terms whether I have any regrets about the way in which I conducted myself and the drive for reform that I undertook and the passion that I displayed, I have no regrets on those fronts because the truth of the matter is that if you are going to bring about change, particularly when there are vested interests resisting it or simply a, a very traditional culture, you do have to be persistent. Let's talk about Brexit, uh, because I think we probably have to, we should cover it. Um, just just from the point of view of your kind of oversight of this process over three plus years from the time of the referendum result onwards, what was the thing that kind of was your, was your kind of North Star for your judgment? Well, in the sentence, I always felt that Parliament must have its say and that Parliament must have its way. That was my guiding principle. So my attitude really very simply was that first I wanted as far as possible everybody to be able to contribute. It may sound a rather banal point, but it was quite important in my mind. And you will recall, Ed, that my normal practice was to sit through all of those exchanges without interruption myself. I didn't go in and out or hand over to someone. And with extraordinary bladder control, if I may say so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it was Barry Gardner who nicknamed me Golden Bladder. What is the bladder method? Is it not to drink at all for the few hours beforehand? Yes, and certainly not to drink coffee for some hours beforehand, Ed. And then when I was doing a very long stint in the chair, I would drink water, but only on a pretty modest scale and tending to have, you know, a sip an hour or whatever. Now, Philippa Whitford, Dr. Philippa Whitford, the SNP member, did say to me at one point that this was quite unhealthy and she wouldn't recommend it. But it wasn't a daily phenomenon, although it became much more common in the last year or so of my speakership. It wasn't a daily phenomenon, but it would happen from time to time. So my guiding principle was let everybody be heard. That was the first point. And I suppose the second point was this, and I'm not sure that this point has ever really got across, but I'd like to use your podcast to try to convey it. That last parliament, 2017 to 19, was different from all the previous parliaments in which I'd served as Speaker, in the simple sense that for a very, very, very prolonged part of that parliament, on the biggest issue of the day, the government did not have a majority. And there were people, of course, as you will know, who criticised me and said that I was biased against Brexit or against the government, against Conservative ministers, and that I was making decisions that made it very difficult for them. Well, my attitude, and I remember saying this to the government chief whip at the time, Julian Smith, with whom on the whole I got on pretty well. Julian, it is not the responsibility of the speaker to protect the government from the absence of a majority in parliament. 
I am making decisions on procedural matters, deciding on the selection of amendments and so on, on one guiding principle. And my guiding principle is to try to facilitate the House of Commons. It wasn't the chair's job either to try to deliver Brexit or indeed to try to stop Brexit. It was the chair's job to let the House breathe. And that's what I tried to the best of my ability to do. And and what are you most looking forward to doing in your new life? How do you think you will be spending your time and what's the thing you're most enthusiastic about? Well, I have been doing a lot of public speaking. This would not entirely surprise you, Ed. Still less would it surprise my late father, who said at the dinner table, I think in 1975, John, generally speaking, is speaking. (laughs) <laughs> so you won't be surprised today that I've been doing a lot of public speaking to business organizations, lunches, dinners, conferences, one sort or another. Uh, obviously, you know, that's more difficult at the moment because of the public health crisis. So I'm taking a pause, but I have been doing a great deal of that. I'm also doing some work as a part-time professor of politics at Royal Holloway College, London University. And I'm really proud to be Chancellor, this is an unpaid role, an honorary role, but a role that I cherish as Chancellor of my alma mater, the University of Essex. And so I'm hoping to devote time to all of these things and perhaps also to watching more sport when all being well, the crisis is overcome. There is one other thing I'd like to mention, and that is that if you ask me what's the theme that interests me most? The answer is social mobility. I'm very interested in social mobility, or indeed, dare I say it, I'm sad to say it, the relative lack of it. Still, far too much depends on where you were born, who your parents were or are, how much money they've got, what school you attended or university you went to. And I think that that is a huge challenge for this country. So the whole theme of social mobility and indeed on the commercial side, corporate social responsibility, you know, is very much of interest to me. And I hope that there might be an opportunity to do some work in that field over a period that certainly would float my boat. It would be a great source of interest. Well, look, John Burkow, you you've been a brilliant um, guest. Uh, good luck in uh, everything you're doing. Your book is unspeakable. Uh, it's strongly recommended. Uh, available at all good um, bookshops, or I suppose purchasable online uh, in today's um, climate. Uh, stay safe and thank and thank you so much for joining us. Ed, thank you very much indeed. I appreciate being given the chance. I, I regard it as a privilege to talk to you and i think we like each other i respect you very much and it's been both fun and a privilege what about me john (laughs) jeff you have done a fantastic job i just wish that instead of meeting you in this way i were meeting you for real and you have you've done played into all his neuroses, John. <laughs> all dates back to a lunch I had with the pop star George Ezra. Where I didn't invite him. I'm afraid you've just, we've just, you weren't to know, but we've played into his neuroses. <laughs> do you think Jeff? Do you think Jeff's got a bit of a complex about that? He does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>